You know, last week, if you were here, we looked at Revelation 19, I think one of the most exciting, one of the most profound chapters in all the Bible. We saw the second coming of Jesus Christ into this world. We saw all unbelievers wiped off the planet. We saw the Antichrist and the false prophet put into the lake of fire. I mean, everything's cleaned up, right? We, we, we're ready to step into heaven. Well, no, not actually quite yet. Well, what comes next is not heaven. Uh, what, what comes next is not eternity, uh, but quite a few other things still need to be taken care of. We're going to be looking this morning in Revelation chapter 20. If you want to start turning there, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some on the chairs in front of you. If you want to find one or have somebody hand it to you and uh, get to the end, you'll see maps. Then go back a few pages. You'll be in Revelation 20. I like to call this chapter tying up loose ends. Uh, because while we've had all of these really big things happen in Revelation and why we are way down the road in God's timetable and economy, there's still some pretty significant things that have to happen that need to happen. In Revelation 20, we're going to answer questions like, what is the millennium? We're, we're going to look at when is Satan dealt with? Because we haven't dealt with him yet. We took care of the Antichrist and false prophet, but Satan is still out there. And we still have not seen in the entire history of man a single unbeliever resurrected. So we have a lot of things to tie up here before we're ready to step into heaven. So let's begin in Revelation chapter 20. And uh, I'm going to begin reading there in verse 1. Revelation 20, verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that after that he would no longer deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection. The one I was talking about earlier is what he's saying here. Uh, when, when people are reigning with Christ, that's the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over these, but they will be priests of God and the Messiah. And they will reign with him for 1,000 years. When the 1,000 years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And ever. So the first question we're going to be answering in this passage is, what is the millennium? Now, I imagine a lot of you know the meaning of the word millennium is simply a thousand. And in this passage, we are introduced to the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. Now, the only place in the Bible 
where this kingdom is referred to as a thousand years is right here in Revelation 20. Now, it says it six times. You could say it says it six times, but it's only in one chapter, Revelation 20. Now, while the length of that kingdom is only expressed here, the idea of this kingdom, the description of this kingdom is talked about throughout the Bible. Folks, this was the hope and the faith of the Jews. If you'll go back to the Gospels, and you'll watch people, his own apostles, the Pharisees, interacting with Jesus, what's the question they always ask? When's the kingdom coming? That's their hope. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for this king. And they missed him the first time. Because while there's a lot of passages, and I've listed just a few of them there, where you can see some descriptions of this millennial or this messianic kingdom... While, there's only, while that is right there, they had also missed all the passages that talked about the first coming. The, the coming where he comes not as a king, but as he comes as a, as a suffering servant. Uh, the one, the Messiah, who will come and die for them before he comes and sets up this kingdom for them. So they, they missed his first coming. They missed what he was there about and all the passages that explain that. But a lot of passages in the Bible talk about this millennial kingdom, this messianic kingdom. You see some of those passages there. Next, I want to show you what that kingdom looks like. What it, how it's described in the passages I listed there and, and, and really passages throughout the Old Testament. Remember where we were, Revelation 19, Jesus has come to the earth. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire. All unbelievers are dead. The only people left alive are believers. And that's going to be people who came to Christ during the tribulation and survived the tribulation which I can only imagine from everything I've read in the tribulation, would be just a precious few people. But, but those who are still alive and believers, they're the ones who start the millennium. Remember, we have come back with Jesus. Remember reading that last week in Revelation 19? So you got kind of this, I hate to use this word, almost weird thing going on. There, there's two kinds of people on the planet. There are those who have come back with Jesus. That means we've already been resurrected, raptured. We've already been through our judgment. We've got our rewards. And with that, we've got our eternal body. So we have come back with Jesus to this kingdom. We're reigning with him on this planet. We're not given to marriage anymore. We're not given to, to, uh, to, to repopulating anymore. We're reigning with Christ. But on the earth are also these humans that have survived. They'll still be given to marriage. They will repopulate the earth. And this will be the kingdom. And this is what life on the earth will be like. God will judge the nations. His son is going to reign. We saw that, that first one is, is completed at the end of the tribulation start of the millennium. And then for a thousand years, all the nations of the earth are going to look to Jerusalem. They're all going to look to the Lord. There will be no more war. The world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. There'll be no weeping and crying. People will again live to be very old. The Bible says that during this time period, that if somebody dies at the age of 100, they'll be considered cursed. So, so people are going to live a long time during the millennium. There'll be great prosperity and joy. There'll be peace among animals. Some of you might remember that passage. talks about the lamb and the lion lying down together. That happens during this millennial kingdom. Jesus will rule as king, administering justice and righteousness. Israel will be secure. There'll be one nation all through the Bible, through the Old Testament, the major prophets, the minor prophets, there's that hope of Israel and Judah becoming one nation again and a descendant of David, who we know to be Jesus, ruling as king. And the last one's the most important one. God will live among them in the person of Jesus Christ. Folks, I think what you really have in this millennial kingdom is you've got to return to the Garden of Eden. 
When we think of the Garden of Eden, we've got two people in kind of this tropical paradise look. And that way, you know, the pictures that you saw in the pictorial Bible, they're always kind of in a jungle looking thing. A happy jungle. There's no mosquitoes or, or humidity, uh, clearly. Uh, but, but they're there. Well, now on the other side of the other end of the Bible, you've got really what's describing what God intended for the Garden of Eden to be. Except now it's not just two people. It's an entire planet. Now, now what I'm de- describing here is called a premillennial view of, of, of all of this. And that is Jesus returning to the earth, setting up this kingdom, God fulfilling every one of his promises. I mean, folks, there's none of these promises where God says, well, you know what, I'm just going to, it'll all kind of be fulfilled in the end. I'll just clean all that up and it, it's going to turn out that way. No, he fulfills every specific promise that he gave to the Jews and to this world in this millennial kingdom. Our God is a promise keeper. He makes a promise. He fulfills it. He fulfills it just like he said it. Now, there are other ways of looking at Revelation 20 in this thousand years. There is an amillennial view, ah meaning none, that, that there's not a thousand years. They would say this is just a, a spiritual reference. This is a symbolic reference. It's not a literal or a real thousand years. Then there is a post-millennial view that says that Jesus will come after the millennium. That the world's just going to get better and better and better. And one day we'll start this thousand year reign. Jesus won't be in Jerusalem, but he'll be in heaven. Uh, you, you know, one of the things I miss on the post-millennial view is the timing of all this. You read Revelation 19, and, and everybody interprets that as the second coming of Jesus. It's very clear Jesus is returning physically to this world. And then what's the first word in chapter 20? Then. It, you have the second coming of Christ. Then. The thousand years. It seems like the Bible's made it pretty clear what the order is. Second coming then the thousand year reign. Now, I'm not going to, as I've done in some of these other sermons in this series, I'm not really going to take any time with looking at the amillennial or the postmillennial view. They, they do two key things, both views. They're different. But they do two key things. One is n- neither one takes revelation literally. Uh, they, they, they see it as symbolic and mystical and spiritual and, and none of it's actually going to literally happen that way. I take a literal view of revelation. In a literal view, you still acknowledge that there's symbols there. You, you still acknowledge that there's metaphors and, and similes. Remember English grammar? Is that kind of coming back to you? You still recognize that some of that is there, but it's still a literal book. And when it says Jesus is returning to the earth, that's what it means. It means he's returning to the earth. So I take a literal view. They don't, so I'm not even on the same page with them from the very beginning. But the other big thing both of those views do is they dismiss Israel. They say God is not going to fulfill any of his promises to Israel, that Israel's no longer a part of God's plan because of their first rejection of the Messiah at his first coming. And and they believe that the church has replaced Israel. So when God fulfills his promises, he's fulfilling them to the church and not Israel. You know, you hear him explain it there. It kind of makes some sense. It's just minor detail. It's just nowhere found in the Bible, in my humble but totally accurate opinion. You know, so because of those two reasons, I I don't hold to them. If you want to pursue them, Google it and study it. Maybe you'll believe in that. If you want to be wrong, I have no problem with that. So what I'm what I'm what I'm showing you, what I'm teaching is called a premillennial view. It has Christ returning before the millennium, establishing this kingdom, establishing the world in this time of peace and justice and righteousness. God reigning on this world. We just read during this time, Satan is bound. 
He, he, he's locked up, he's put away, he can have no deception, no deceiving of people or of the nations. Now, at the end of the thousand years, and folks, I'm explaining this super quick, uh, really in a very ingest way, but at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be let loose. I'm going to come back and explain that a little bit. But he's going to be let loose, and he's going to begin what he did right there back in the Garden of Eden. He's going to begin deceiving people. And, and some of these people, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought all the people in the millennium were believers. Well, remember, these believers are going to start repopulating the planet. And their children will have to make a decision for the Lord. Well, he's going to be able to deceive these people. And you say, well, how many will he deceive? Well, it's described here that it's like the sand on the seashore. I, I mean, I can only read that and understand that to mean a lot multitudes of people, Satan's going to go to them, I think, much the same way he went to, to Adam and Eve and say, you know what, we don't have to live under his rule. Wouldn't it be better if you didn't have to do what he said, if you could just do what you wanted to do? And Adam and Eve said, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And, and folks, that decision has caused every problem we have on this planet. From, from, a, from a headache and not feeling very well today to cancer and disease and everything else. From, from an argument with your mate or your child to war. Everything going wrong, wrong on this planet is from man's decision to do things their own way. And he'll be able to deceive them again. They will approach Jerusalem, as it says here in the passage. And again, just like in Revelation 19, it's going to happen very quickly. Fire will fall from heaven. Judge Satan. Judge those people who fall. They go into the lake of fire. And that kind of encapsulates the millennial kingdom. Now, a question might come up is, <laughs> why? Why is there this millennial kingdom? And, and, and why... Does God let Satan loose? I mean, we finally had him bound. We finally had that guy dealt with. Why does he let him go again to deceive these people and, and, and start this war all over again? Could I suggest it's to prove a point? Just to prove a point. I, I believe, as I've already said, you've got the millennial kingdom uh, on, on one end of Scripture. You've got the Garden of Eden on the other end of Scripture. On one end, it's just two people. Who are making this decision. And you know some of us might look back and say. Well I wish I'd have been one of those two. You know I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have made that decision. And maybe we even say today. Gosh it'd be easier. It'd be easier to follow God. If I could actually see him. It'd be easier to obey. If I knew he was real. And I, and I knew he was here. You know if, if I had a better environment. As a matter of fact. Some people don't believe in God. Because they feel like. Well in some environments. It's hard to get to know God. You know you're, you're sharing the gospel with me. But, but what about people who never here and, and we have this idea if we can create this perfect environment where everybody's doing what they're supposed to do and we could see god well, well then it'd be easy to make the decision adam and eve made that decision for all of us and look at the world but then we're going to come to the other end and guess what all of a sudden it's not two people and all of these people do see god and they do see his glory and his work and his power. And they're living in a perfect world. And yet again, not two, but multitudes will go after Satan, will go after sin, will go after self. They'll have seen Jesus. I mean, even we think that, don't we? Boy, if I could see God, it sure would be easier. You know what, if I had a better environment if it was a more perfect world, it sure be easier. Guess what, folks? You can look at them, you can have a perfect world, and you can still be deceived. 
you can still choose to live for yourself and turn this world into a disaster. Now, why bookend the Bible this way? Why have this with two people with a multitude of people? Because the next event on God's timetable is going into heaven. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem is going to be delivered. And before that happens, I believe this is an opinion, God is bookending Scripture with very similar events. In one case, it's two people. In another case, it's a multitude of people. And he's showing humanity, all of us, the two, the multitude, and everything in between, that as we enter heaven, folks, make no mistake, it is by the work and the grace of God. We don't enter heaven because we're basically pretty good people. You know, my environment messed me up some, but, but I'm a good person and I would choose to do right, especially if God would show himself. Well, here's a multitude of people who had a perfect environment, who saw God, and they still, they still went after Satan and sin and self. Folks, we are not basically good people. We're not okay in and of ourselves, left to our own We can be deceived, left to our own. We will choose to rebel against God, not trust Him more, not follow Him more closely, not obey Him better. Left to ourselves, we choose to rebel. It is the work and the grace of God that gives you and I the opportunity to enter heaven. And God proves that with a multitude. He proves that with two. And so now we've got Satan who has, who has deceived these people and they move against Jerusalem. And folks, just like last week, do you remember? We were preparing for Armageddon. We're preparing for this massive battle of humanity. And it's over in like two sentences. Now, that wasn't very fun. We were expecting a lot of special effects and big war machinery and all that. No, God speaks and it's done. And now we come to chapter 20 and it's the exact same thing. Here comes Satan and the multitudes. It says, over the face of the earth. And they're approaching Jerusalem. And fire falls and it's done. Just like that. Folks, what a profound lesson there is right here. Don't ever think, even for a single second, that there is a big battle going on back then, in the future, or right now between God and Satan. Folks, we're not living in a world where God and Satan are battling it out fist to fist, blow for blow, action for action. We're not in a situation where it's a battle between good and evil. And boy, us Christians, we kind of know the end. We know the future and God's going to win. But boy, we're hanging it on while God and Satan are duking it out. Folks, there's no battle. God's won. He wins every single day. Satan has no power but what God authorizes him to have. Satan's space. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Listen to this. Listen. Satan's time is defined by God. Satan's space is defined by God. What Satan is allowed to do is defined by God. Granted, what Satan is doing is in rebellion and anger and fighting back, but God's only going to allow him to do, just like right here, he lets him go to deceive, but only to serve God's purposes. Satan's not getting away with anything. Satan's not winning anything. And when God's done with him, he says, lake of fire. And there's no battle. There's no Satan saying, whoa, 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 you know what? No, lake of fire. And that's it. Now, as we now see, there's now three people. Lake of fire, Gehenna, hell. That's what this place is called. Okay? There's only three people in the lake of fire. There's Satan, there's the Antichrist, and there's the false prophet. But watch what's going to happen. We're going to learn something about death right here. I'm going to read verse 10 again and finish the chapter. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. There's your three people. And they will be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. Now, what did I say a moment ago? Not a single unbeliever has ever been resurrected. Let's read verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found, this is all unbelievers, the book of life is those who've placed their faith in Christ. They've, they've proven, they've shown that they're in the book of life by their faith in Christ. Anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I just said we learned something about death. Okay, the lake of fire is described as what? Go back to verse 10. It's described as a place of torment day and night forever and ever. Folks, there are people who believe that when you die, that's it. But death is not cessation. It's not ceasing to exist. Death is not annihilation. The human soul lives forever and ever. I say that if you believe in God and you believe in God's Word, that's what God's Word said. Now, if you don't believe in God, or you don't believe in what God's Word says, then you may hold any view you want about death. Good luck with that. But God, what God said is that we go on living forever. They are resurrected. They are given an eternal body. But it's not a body that's given to no pain and suffering. It's a body given just to endure pain and suffering, to endure torment forever and ever. Now, folks, if you ceased to exist, okay, and some believe, some, you know, even, even Christians, you, that you cease to exist, that's, that's the hell, you're no longer. If you cease to exist, then why would God use the word torment? If you're not existing, I promise you, you're not being tormented. You don't exist. If you've been annihilated, you can't be tormented. And if you don't exist, then why would we measure time? Because phrases like day and night, that's a measurement of time, isn't it? If, if I've been annihilated, if I'm not existing, then there's no reason to use a phrase like day and night. There's no reason to use a phrase like forever and ever. So the human soul never ceases to exist, okay? Believer or unbeliever, the human soul never ceases to exist. Now, I want to stop this part of the sermon and answer a question. I've been looking for a place to do this. Because a couple of weeks ago, we were preaching on the rapture. Well, I was preaching on it. You weren't. But we were talking about the rapture. And, and you remember there's a phrase in there that says, and the dead in Christ rise first. Well, that threw a lot of y'all into deep confusion and frustration. You went, oh, where's my mom? Where's my dad? Where, where's that loved one that's passed away? I thought they went to heaven, but here they are rising out of the ground. Where have they been all this time? And I've gotten lots of emails. Lots of people have stopped me in there. You don't believe they go to heaven or hell? Okay, where do people go right now when they die? Now, generally speaking, I think it's fine. I think it's accurate. I say it to say, generally speaking, a person goes to heaven or hell. A heaven-like experience or a hell-like experience. But if we're being accurate, if we're being technical, heaven and hell are both future events. They haven't been delivered. Hell is the lake of fire. 
And we saw in Revelation 19 where the first two people went into the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, we saw Satan, and then we saw everybody else. So technically speaking, hell is a future event. In 21 and 22, we're going to see the new heaven, the new earth, and we enter that. Heaven is a future event. So where are they right now? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look and see here. Uh, When people die today as a believer or as an unbeliever, believers today go into the presence of the Lord. The Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we don't, we don't die and just kind of lay there until this all happens. We're not in a, some people refer to it as a soul sleep. Uh, that's not what Scripture teaches. The moment you die, you are in the presence of God. The Scripture defi- defines that place or describes that place as paradise. Now, it doesn't go into a lot of description of it, but I know every time I've seen the word paradise used, it was a pretty awesome place. Wouldn't you say that? Paradise is usually a very good thing. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today, not after you lay dead for many years, but don't worry, you won't notice time's passing because you'll be asleep. He said, today, right now, you're going to be with me in paradise because of your faith and trust in me. So we go into the presence of the Lord. We go into paradise. Well, what are we doing right now? I really have no idea. Scripture really does not elaborate on what is happening right now with those people in heaven other than they're in the presence of the Lord and they're living in a place that's a lot like paradise. Okay, so that's what it's described. Well, do we have a body? Because it, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, when we're raptured, when we're resurrected, we get a new body. I believe, and this is an opinion, I believe we have a temporary body. You say, why would you see that? Why would you say that? In Scripture, we see a couple of people. It's a very uncommon, very rare way that God does things and reveal things. But we do see some people leave the presence of the Lord and paradise and come back to earth just for a moment. We see that with Samuel. He's called back from the dead for just a moment. We see it with Moses and Elijah. Remember when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah meet him there? Peter, James, and John were witness to that. Okay, so that's written about. And when they write about it, they're knowable for who they are. They're they're seen for who they are. Nothing stood out to the writers as they said, and there was Samuel or there was Moses and Elijah. Now, if we got some kind of weird, funky body that looked different, you'd think they'd say, I saw Moses and Elijah. Man, strange enough, I guess in heaven we have three eyes. Or or, or in heaven we've got wings. Or or in heaven, you you, you know, know, they they didn't note anything. Why didn't they note anything? Because nothing stood out. It was just them in some kind of body. So I would assume that when we go to heaven, you're you, folks. You're not a ghost. You're not a spirit. You're not floating around. You're you. Your memory, your history, your soul, and some kind of temporary body that gives you the ability to begin enjoying the presence of the Lord in paradise. If you die as an unbeliever, very similar. You don't go to hell. Judgment has not yet happened. But you go to a place that is much like hell. You go to the place of the dead. Psalms refers to it as Sheol. I probably should have put this up there too. Revelation 20 refers to it as death in Hades. Death in Hades gave up the dead. All the people who've been there. They're all, uh, that, that's where you go where an unbeliever goes when they die right now. If you read those passages, it's very clear that it is a place of suffering and torment. They haven't been judged. They haven't gone yet to hell, but they know they've missed it and their suffering begins. So that's where, uh, you know, folks, I think if you go to those passages, if you've written them down, of course, you can go to our website and download the notes. But uh, I think if you go to those passages, it's really very, very clear. Isn't it amazing how much we don't know and we have to put it all together? You know, this book's been around for 2000 years. So if we don't know it, whose fault is it? Not God's. He's made it clear. It's been there the entire time. Scripture is very clear about that. So 
We come back to these unbelievers. They are resurrected right here, verse 11, at the great white throne. Now this passage refers to a first and a second uh, resurrection. Now that doesn't mean first as in there's a first one, then there's a second one, then there's a third one and, and a fourth one. It's first and second kind. The first kind of resurrection is the resurrection of believers. And there's actually, under this first kind of resurrection, there's a multitude of resurrections. There's a number of, remember, the church and, and, and believers, are the dead in Christ, are resurrected, we said, before the tribulation. So that's a place where there's a resurrection of believers. Then remember, we had those two special witnesses inside the tribulation. They did all those miracles. They had all that power. But then God let the Antichrist kill them. Remember, they laid dead in the streets for three and a half days. And then what did God do? He resurrected them. So we have a whole bunch of all the believers of all time that are resurrected before the tribulation. Then we got two believers resurrected. Then we come back to Revelation 20 and it talks here about the saints who did not take the mark of the beast. These are people who became Christians during the tribulation. And as many Christians, as many people who become Christians during the tribulation will, they're going to be killed by the Antichrist. They're going to be beheaded. And, and now the passage says, and they're resurrected. If there's any believers, and I don't know quite what that'll look like or, or, or when that'll happen, but if there's any believers in the millennium that die, they'll be resurrected before the great white throne. So all believers of all time have been resurrected, rewarded, have their eternal bodies by the time we get to the great white throne. The great white throne is not a place for believers. Our, our judgment, our rewards do not happen there. Unbelievers of all time are brought before the great white throne and books. The books are opened. And there's two kinds of books. There's the book of life, of which none of their names appear. Uh, the book of life is the names of those who are children of God, followers of Jesus Christ. These are the ones who've placed their faith in Jesus, received his gift of eternal life and, and the forgiveness of sins. There's that book, but none of these people are in that book. And it says over and over they're going to be judged by what they've done. You know why? Because that's what they asked for. You know, folks, when you, when, when you break people down... When you get to death, when you get to judgment, there, there's only two kinds. There's, there's the saved and there's the lost. There's the believer and there's the unbeliever. The saved and the believers are not counting in themselves. They're not going to stand before God and point to what they've done. They're going to point to what Christ has done. Their faith is in grace. Grace. The gracious, kind work of God that begins not with how good we are or how good we can be, but begins with His steadfast love and saves us. Everybody else has rejected that. They said, well, I can get there on my own. I'm good enough on my own. I'm going to choose this religion. I'm going to choose that way. And these are all the people of all time. They're going to go stand before God and they're going to tell God what they tried to be, what they wanted to be, what they hoped to be. They picked this religion and, and, and fulfilled almost all the tenets of it. They, they did this. They did that. They're pointing to their works. And God says, okay, you're here by your works. Let's throw open the books. And what they're going to see in those books is one unpaid sin after another. You know, I've said throughout this series, folks, you don't want to pay for your sin. You can't. You can't pay for your sin. But mankind has this mentality. And folks, it's true in every single religion but Christianity. Christianity is the only one that teaches this idea of approaching God, approaching the afterlife by God's work and by God's grace and by God's initiative. But all the other religions, as, as different as they may be, with all the different names that they have for gods, they are all basically saying, here's a way 
for you to try to clean up your life before you meet God. And don't we all, I think we've all struggled with this. We have this mentality of my good outweighing my bad. I hope I do enough good that, that it covers my bad. And that's what religion helps us to do. It tells us here's the good things, here's the bad things, try to do more of these. It tells us, it tells us how to prepare to meet this God. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if I've got 51 bad, good things and 49 bad things, you know, I'm in. I'm good. I came out ahead on the good side. But, you know, when you stop and think about that, while it, in some ways it makes sense, we can flip that around and say, you know what? This mentality of every human being that has ever lived, every single one, is absolutely ridiculous. You know, if I come over here to this person and, and, and I'm mean to them, I spit on them, and they're a church member. There's a few of them I spit on. Not many, a couple, okay? And, and not only am I mean to them, but, but I go and I lie about them. I, I tell y'all, I go out among the church and oh, this person, and I tell you awful things. And pretty soon we all together, we don't like this person. We're, now, have I done something wrong there? Yeah, yeah, folks, a little bit more confident there if you'd help me know. That's a wrong thing. Are we all in agreement? Pastor's done a wrong thing, spitting on that person, lying about him and being mean. But I come over here to this person, another church member, and I'm real nice to them. They're a little bit down on their time. I give them some money. And, and I go over and I babysit their kids so they can go out and, 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 and be together. And I, I just, you know, I fix things at their house. I do good works, right? I've done a good thing over here, right? Yeah. Whew. Okay. All right, we're good. Okay, the whole concept of good and bad, we're struggling with a little bit. Um, okay, now, I've done a good thing. Now let's up the ante. I still have only done the one wrong thing to that one person over here. But now there's a second individual or a second family that I've done something good for. So now, am I ahead in this? Got two good, I've got two families I've done something good for, but I've still got the bad over there. It's two to one. I'm ahead, right? You know, think about it this way, folks. I, I may have done something good and wonderful over here. Does that bring me back to neutral or ahead for that person over there? No matter how much good I do over here, it doesn't change that. It doesn't fix that. It doesn't justify that. This makes all the sense in the world. And yet, folks, every single religion, every human is operating under this concept of hoping that my good outweighs my bad. Your good will not undo the bad. There's only one work that's ever happened on this planet that will undo the bad. It happened on a Friday. The person of Jesus Christ went to the cross and it is his work that pays and justifies and undoes the bad that you have done in your life. It's his work. It's your faith in him, not your confidence in yourself that hopefully you've done enough to make this apparently angry God happy. Folks, it's faith in Christ. That's the only way to show that your name has been written since the foundations of the world that your name has been written in the book of life. By your faith in Christ. Most of the world doesn't do that. Most of the world is going to keep their faith in themselves. And the Bible is abundantly clear. They're not going to die. There is a second resurrection and they move into a second death. The death is not a cessation of existence. It is a torment in hell forever and ever and ever. And folks, some people like to picture Scripture, like to picture Christianity and God as an angry God waiting to zap you, just waiting to see the wrong that you do so He can grab you by the neck and toss you into hell. That's not what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says? It says God is patient with you. He doesn't want anybody to go to the lake of fire. That's not His desire. That's not His, you know, I want you to go to hell. No, He doesn't desire that. He wants all to come to repentance. 
all to come to faith in Christ. That's what God's word says. Go back to that song Jason just sang a moment ago in the choir in order to Jesus saves. What does he save from, folks? He saves from the lake of fire. He saves you from the eternity that you asked for. The eternity that you lived for. You said, I don't want life under God. I want it my way. Well, folks, my way ends in the lake of fire for all eternity. You know what? As we look over these last two weeks, Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, I see two great truths. One, there is a king. Number two, there is a book of life. I guess I should say there's a third. There is a lake of fire. There is a hell. Now, folks, when you put these truths together, what it means, because I think if we could look at Revelation 20 alone, we, we, we could scare people into heaven, couldn't we? Man, if you don't come and you receive Jesus, you're going to go to hell and burn forever and ever and ever. And you know what? That's the truth. And you should be scared. It is a scary proposition. But folks, this is what I mean. This lake of fire is what I mean when I say coming to Christ is not coming to get fire insurance. Yes, you should be scared of this place and you should be scared and realize, oh my gosh, that is my future and there's nothing I can do to correct it. There's nothing I can do to fix it. But Jesus has done something for me. I'm going to him. I'm going to go put my faith and my trust in him instead of in myself. Okay, now we've got our fire insurance. But folks, when you came to Jesus, what did we learn last week? You came to the king of all kings. You don't come, grab your insurance policy, and then go out and keep living like everybody that's going to the lake of fire. When you come to the king of all kings, you and everything you are and everything you have belongs to the king of kings. Your life, your relationships, your job, your priorities, your money, your stuff, everything about you now serves the agenda, not of your kingdom, it serves the agenda of the king of all kings. You've got to put both of these truths together. You know what that means? That means every single one of us in this room needs to be thinking right now. Have I shown my lane to be in the book of life? And am I serving the king that I came and got saved by? Am I serving the king that I came and got that free gift by? There is a king. There is a book of life. And everything about our lives should show that we know this truth. And we're living in light of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you. What a glorious, awesome, majestic, powerful future you have designed. And there is no one, there is nothing that is going to stop it. There is no power in competition with the throne of God. And we exalt you, we acknowledge you, we worship you for that truth. And God, if there are any in here today who have never received the free gift of the King, the gift of eternal life, the gift of the forgiveness of sins, they've, they've never given their lives the opportunity to be saved from the lake of fire, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that changes for them. And Lord, for all the rest of us in this room, many of us, most of us, we've been saved, we've come to You. But oh God, may this be a time of repentance and confession may this be a time of recommitment to this concept to this idea that i have a king in my life and everything i am and have belongs to him 
Lord, in this moment that we sing, may we also just kind of walk through our week. May we walk through this past week. May we walk through this week ahead. And may we ask ourselves, how is my life serving the agenda of a king? Is it clear that my life belongs to the king? God, help us to orient ourselves to this future, to this reality. We prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.